You're listening to Do South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. They're a crunchy all-American fruit. And 15 minutes from right now, you might just look at them in an entirely new light. Apples. If you're only looking skin deep, the apple is an unassuming fruit. Always readily available, classic, reliable. But there's something you don't know about apples. A lot of things. In fact, the apple's origin story is seedier than you might think. Diane Flint is the author of Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. She's also the founder of Foggy Ridge Cider in Dugspur, Virginia. Diane, welcome to Do South. Jeff, I'm so glad to be here and speak with you. All right, I want to acknowledge just how much more there is to this book as we get going uh, into our conversation than meets the eye. Readers may start out thinking, oh, this is a, this is a horticultural uh, collection but this is much more than that. It's part memoir, part history uh, primer. There's a healthy amount of planting and harvesting within this this reading, but there's also so much more. Talk to us about when you first started developing this story and how you decided on this structure for your book. Sure. I I wanted to share not what I already knew about apples in the South, but what I knew I would learn by diving deep. Yeah. You know, apples are so much more, as you say, than that shiny red skin. And I knew, because of apples' biology, how tied they are to people. And I felt like my region, I'm, I'm a Southerner born in Georgia, spent a third of my life there, a third in North Carolina, and now this third in Virginia, mm-hmm. growing apples. I knew there was a much deeper story. This book has just very readable, engaging chapters, has anecdotes from your own life. Tell us a little bit, please, about your personal history with apples and cider making. I planted my first orchard in Virginia as a cider apple orchard in 1997, and it was the first orchard fully devoted to cider apples in the South in the 20th century. And founded Foggy Ridge Cider, which was the first cidery south of Massachusetts. And it was great to be a pioneer, a little daunting. People would sometimes walk in our tasting room and ask me what grapes this was made from. (laughs) Seriously? Yes. Oh, wow. But I always believed that cider apples grown well could make as complex and interesting a beverage as wine grapes grown well. Tell us a little bit more about uh, trying to buck this trend. Uh, did it take a long time for people to coalesce around this cidery in southwestern Virginia? Or did you have to sell it, like a hard sell? Or did, were people like, this is amazing, and they, they, they were just hooked? Well, people are very familiar with cider, but what they're thinking of is that brown juice that's sold on the side of the road mm-hmm. in the fall. That's mm-hmm. apple juice, often oxidized apple juice. And it was a bit of a hurdle to talk about cider as a nuanced beverage, with the kinds of flavor that you might find in a, in a well-made wine. But I think when people s- taste really well-made cider from carefully selected fruit, and there's lots of that out in the world, especially in North Carolina, there's some wonderful cider makers mm-hmm. around, I think they're won over. It's, it's a beverage with complex flavor. It's bright. It's got acidity. pairs well with food. So uh, it wasn't too hard of a sell. I met an old man on the side of the road And he wasn't wearing the nicest clothes But he was selling apple cider by the glass 
Diane Flint is the author of Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. She's your guest here on Due South. Let's turn to history. Tell me about William Fitzhugh and his role as it pertains to the early history of apples in this country, this area. William Fitzhugh was one of the first really large orchardists we know about. And we know that because he wrote lots of letters. He emigrated from England and settled in Virginia's northern neck, which we don't think about as apple territory. But everyone who came to America planted apples. They were integral to the South and grown from Mississippi and southern Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, had very important apple nurseries in the 19th century. And Virginia's northern neck was a center of apple production. And he planted those in, in what was virgin forest. And when I say he planted them, of course, he didn't plant them. Right, right. Um, the indentured servants and later the enslaved men and women planted apple seedlings in and amongst the stumps of these enormous trees. You carefully and frequently note throughout the text here uh, that the early colonists who, who got going with apple production really do rely on uh, enslaved labor during this period. Sure. Plantations and farms that, that use the labor of enslaved people, uh, the people who were growing the fruit, that's where knowledge is in farming. It's, it's hands-on, kind of dirt-under-the-fingernails farming. I know how my trees grow because I'm out there pruning them in the winter, and I understand their growth habits. I planted my orchard. My first orchard, I planted every single tree. And that's the knowledge of farming resides in the doing. Now, of course, the South had many small farmers, so it was really black, white, and indigenous orchardists who were building this great horticultural experiment of apples in the South. There's also a great deal of indigenous farmer erasure within your book, Diane. Uh, I was struck by the story of Jarvis Van Buren, who marketed Southern fruit and was called by some a Renaissance man. What was his connection to Cherokee orchardists in Georgia? That was a real surprise to me as a Georgia native. The history that, that I was taught as a young person had a couple of paragraphs on you know what we call very uh, too far too briefly the Trail of Tears. But the Indian Removal Act in 1836 and the violent expulsion of indigenous people mm-hmm. from, from, the, from the East, um, Georgia had the largest indigenous population and had a quite violent uh, removal of those peoples from land they'd occupied for thousands of years. And indigenous people were great cultivators of the soil, were, were great tree people. They, um, before colonizers arrived, cultivated mulberry trees for, the, for that fruit. So when apples arrived in North America, they really embraced apples. And the Cherokee in Georgia were especially good orchardists. And after Indian removal, uh, Jarvis Van Buren, um, a nurseryman and, and architect from Clarksville, Georgia, gathered apples, gathered grafting wood, and distributed those through his nursery. There's a line in this book about how the value of what the Cherokee held as it pertained to apples was $1.68 million. This was, you know, almost 200 years ago. Uh, this this was the future. This was the, I mean, the, this is this huge, uh, this huge resource, and it's just, it's just taken from them. Um, 
and taken from them along with the the land and the opportunity to grow and cultivate and be just members of this economic ecosystem. Also taken away were the names. Uh, and you write that naming apples tamed them and that Southern apple names trick us with gauzy backstories. And I want to go there with the names. Let's talk about a few of those names. There's Janet Apple, Toby Apple, Madam Muskeet. Take one or two of those and and unpack, please. Madam Muskeet is is one that you see often in lore about not just apples, but plants. And, And the lore there is that this apple, which originated from eastern North Carolina in sandy soil around Lake Matamesquite, that the seeds to this apple were found by uh, indigenous people in the gullet of a, of a wild goose. And that, that, that myth, that trope of finding seeds in some animal and then planting them and, and having that, that uh, seedling tree develop into something valuable, you see that again and again. I think with the with the Cherokee names, we have a, something that I was very interested in exploring in this group in this book, which is the blank pages in history, the 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 silence. You know, silence speaks just as much as presidential journals and mm-hmm. archival papers. Mm-hmm. Um, Jarvis Van Buren made it possible for us to taste Cherokee apples because he put them into production, and in fact, was a great a promoter of those apples, and they became quite renowned in the 19th and early 20th century. But he he put names on them. Yeah. He chose sometimes Cherokee place names, but what we don't know are the stories of the people who selected those apples, who grafted them, who, who chose them. So, Diane, as we think about this history and the erasure and the the colonialism that played out here in the South and the Southeast, there is another layer to this story. And there is an element of resistance. And of course, there was an erasure, but it fortunately wasn't total and complete. Tell us about, you know, an alternate path. It's really an important part of, of this whole story. There was important resistance in the indigenous community. And I think we see that, especially in North Carolina, a group of Cherokee were able to remain, uh, who fought and resisted and gained legal, regained legal ownership of their land, and today are a recognized tribe, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. And David Anderson, a horticulturalist with um, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee in North Carolina, is reviving many of the old apple varieties that were grown by the elders in that community, creating gardens that celebrate that fruit, sharing grafting wood, and getting uh, apples, Cherokee apples, back into the culture in a very strong way. There's a line in this book where you write that in 1779, apples functioned as a tool of terrorism. Tell me more about that. My first research trip was to Cornell, and I read a lot about the Seneca and what great farmers they were and what great orchardists. And one way that war was practiced against the Seneca was by destroying their orchards, by girdling the trees to kill them or by burning them. Um, And that was a way to ruin community. And it, it was an illustration of how important apples were in the culture 
of early America. And that happened in the South with Cherokee and Creek in South Carolina. So there's this uh, acquisition is far too nice of a word, but there's this forced acquisition, this takeover of, of the Apple uh, industry foundation footprint, call it what you will. And in case that wasn't, I don't know, enough, there's almost this pivot. And then we, we end up here today with, with Johnny Appleseed. We have this more of a, much more of a positive connotation. Apples, American pie. What's more, uh, apple pie. What's more American than apple pie? How how and when, and talk to me about the pivot. How did this become such a staple of, of American culture? Apples are a lot like so many aspects of history. We take the shallow view and apples are very whitewashed when you look at marketing campaigns for apples in the early 20th century. There are just some hilarious pictures of, of ladies in house dresses, you know, walking in an orchard with uh, holding a little basket and holding a little blonde-haired boy's hand, gazing up at the trees. And that's painting a picture of this um, kind of pastoral, easy scene. And any farmer knows that Yes, you do have, you know, there are great moments of beauty in an orchard. I'm walking through my orchards in spring with the bees all around me and mm-hmm. different colors of apple blossoms from pure white to, to striped carmine. I mean, that is a moment of beauty that, that I get to experience every year. But it's also a lot of work. It's yeah. growing trees is, is very hard work. And I think we tend to gloss over that complexity Diane Flint is the author of Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. She's your guest here on Due South. I'd love to talk a little bit about the role of the USDA and this government institution that was formed uh, at the authorization of President Lincoln in the 1860s and across a century, mid-19th century to mid-20th century, uh, from its establishment through the civil rights era, it has... Uh, a real influence specifically for apple farmers, uh, apple farmers of of color more specifically. Tell me about what played out here. Oh, really all apple farmers. And I think um, the the history of the USDA has been well documented in in many books and articles. Um, It was a segregated organization to begin with. And the um, racism that has for much of the organization's history played out is well documented. What what struck me as I dug into USDA records was how the move to commercial farming resulted in and, and was to some extent directed by the government to decrease diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, ag- agronomists recommended planting fewer varieties because they believed that was the more profitable thing for farmers to do. I mean, perhaps not well-intentioned, perhaps not uh, poorly intentioned, but resulted in a great decrease in the number of varieties that were grown. How did so many Southern apple varieties 
end up in the American West. Oh, gosh, that's a fascinating story. And there are many ways that they did end up in the in the Midwest and also the, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, some Southern apples were part of Henderson Llewellyn's famous uh, trip across the Oregon Trail with 700 apple tree seedlings in the back of wagons. Uh, a few of those were from the South. And, of course, he was a native North Carolinian. People took their apples. The apples were so ingrained with people's lives. They were precious to them. Um, North Carolina and the South had many family apples that were varieties that were grown just within a single family. Mm. Um, the the um, Farrow family in Georgia grew the Sam apple. In Virginia, the Barriers grew Davidson Sweeting. Lee Calhoun, the author of Old Southern Apples, wrote that in Chatham County was the only place that the Aunt Sally apple was grown. Mm. And maybe these apples, you know, maybe they aren't as delicious, the most delicious apple in the universe, but they had meaning. You right. know, Aunt Sally had meaning to the people in um, Chatham County, and if they moved, they were going to take an Aunt Sally apple with them. Near the end of your book, you write that, quote, Our vision of apples and agriculture has narrowed from richness and flavor to a marketplace vision. I believe that this narrow vision is a poor place to live, close quote. Do you have hopes for the future of Southern apples? I really do, and lots of reasons. The, the last section of my book is called Revived, and there are revivals of old varieties. And I'm happy to say, not just from the standpoint of being in a preservation zoo, but of people growing them, in some cases commercially. The growing cider industry has has sparked an interest in some of these old varieties that are really good for cider. Yeah. Um, Hughes crab apple is an example of that. I had the first commercial planting of Hughes crab apple in the South, and now it's widely grown. This little um, golf ball size red apple that Thomas Jefferson loved so much for cider, and that was widely grown um, all over the South. Throw away. This is like asking a, a politician if they prefer Eastern or Western barbecue. So you might not want to touch it. It's it's an apple grenade, so to speak. Do you have a favorite apple? Lee Calhoun used to say his favorite apple was the last one he ate. Mm, I like that. Yeah. That's safe. I like a complex apple, one that is more than tart and sweet. And that's often what we see in popular modern apples today. That's the modern palate. I like a really tart apple that has complex flavor and aroma. I am thinking of Oh, there's so many. I'm thinking of an old Virginia brandy apple called Parmar that ripens in, in late August, early September. It's the perfect size. It's about five or six bites, mm. so it doesn't overwhelm mm-hmm. you. And it just, it's, it's sweet, but it has, it's balanced with acidity, and the flavors are so complex. Diane Flint is the author of Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South, She's also the founder of Foggy Ridge Cider in Dugspur, Virginia. Diane, thanks for joining us on Do South. You're welcome. It was great to chat with you. There once was a peddler passing by. His cart with fruit was laden high. And as he drove along, he cried across the 